Hello, and welcome to the Film Design Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Neil Coulter is a set decorator and art director working across film, TV, and commercials. As a set decorator, she's worked on films such as Lady in the Van, Far From the Madding Crowd, and the UK section of Dunkirk, art directing commercials for clients such as Revlon and The Co-op. As you said, my name is Neve Coulter. I am a set decorator and art director working across uh, film and commercial and pop videos and various um, and have been doing so for probably about 25 years now. Um, uh, based out of London, um, have a house down in Wales by the sea and uh, currently uh, on hiatus from a job shooting in Belfast, which we hope to go back to in July. And um, yeah, that's about, that's about it. And um, how did you get to the position that you're in of set decorating features and art directing commercials? Well, I started out, I have a degree in history of art. And I started out when I graduated working as a fine art journalist for an art charity, which is now called the Art Fund, was then called the National Art Collections Fund. Um, so I worked with them for uh, two or three years when I graduated and then I went away traveling and uh, ended up living in Java and ended up working uh, for an English newspaper in Jakarta called the Jakarta Post uh, as a sub-editor, long story. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. while I was there, I had an English friend who was a photographer called John and he had moved over, his father worked in the oil industry, he moved over and he started shooting um, fashion and various bits in Jakarta. So I used to help him out on shoots quite a lot and sort of sorting out props and putting sets together and things and I really enjoyed it. Anyway, I came back to London um, after a time and I couldn't uh, I couldn't find a, another magazine or newspaper that I wanted to work for, well not one that would hire me anyway and I wasn't really sure if that's what I wanted to do and I didn't want to work in the art world anymore and a friend of mine who was a commercials producer, really old friend of mine who I went to school with in Ireland um, he said why don't you come work in the film industry and I said I don't really know anything about the film industry and he said oh look it's just common sense just come come and be a second AD on this commercial and just if anybody asks you anything you don't know then just come and ask me I was like okay <laughs> so I did that and um, I didn't get asked too many things I didn't know and it just seemed to be quite a lot of common sense so I did a couple of jobs uh, as an AD and then um, I kind of saw what the art department was doing and I thought well, why am I not doing that that's like a perfect fit for me really it's just it was like a, a light bulb moment I don't think it's ever something I'd thought of as a job before or been aware of as a job before or been presented as a career opportunity before so I then got introduced to um, a set decorator and art director um, who used to work together all the time called Alison Dominitz and Claire Clarkson. So I started working for Ali and Claire um, and that was it really. So I worked with them for quite a long time. We did a lot of big commercials. We never stopped working. I think commercials are a really valuable learning curve for what we do. Much more so now I find that you know, when you're in a, a massive art department on a film and you can pluck an art director out of the pool and put them on set and they're completely panic-stricken and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to react on set and they don't know kind of the rules on set or how things work. Or So I think starting in commercials where you're doing everything from sourcing everything, quickly putting everything together, reacting to changes and standing by on set, um, you learn everything very quickly. 
I think, I think it's, it's a, a, was, was a, a very, very good training ground. So, so I worked with them, them and then I started, I started working with John Beard, Beard and um, I've worked with John now for over 20 years. And we, we did, uh, he invited me to do a film with him called The Lost Son. And then that was the first film I did. And that was it really. So I just started working, well mostly I worked with John. I tried to work with people that I like and get on with. So I worked with John, I worked a lot with Cave and just sort of built it up from there really. I completely agree about the commercial side of things. You just have to be in all places at all times. And especially as the way things have been progressing, you're kind of expected to have everything immediately. Yeah, and be prepared for every eventuality mm. before, during and after. <laughs> Absolutely. In the same way that um, commercials have been speeding up or released up until Corona, have you found that features have been speeding up as well and expectations have been... You know, are you expected to find more things faster also, or has that not been the case? Not so much. I mean, I think there's there's always the element of, um, as you would have on a commercial, when you've got some, you know, creative or some producer going, oh, but we need one like this, and my grandmother used to have one. And you, you obviously still get that on film, and, and people do, you know, depending on who the director is and the producer is or who the studio is, things change very quickly. Um, you know, you can, you can be prepped and ready to shoot... A, a set um, and then all of a sudden there'll be an issue with the actor or with weather or with the script or with something else and they'll they'll park that set and want to do the set that you're meant to do in two weeks time which hopefully you'll be ready for um, but you have to be able to just you know always sort of hit the ground running and, and react to things not not overreact but uh, react in the right way I can imagine and not get caught with your pants down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, with your history of art degree, do you, do you find that that's helped with your research abilities and your research skills with set decoration? It's a, it's a really um, valuable tool, I think, to have, a, to have a very good kind of visual recall and to be able to visualise things and have a knowledge of period. And um, I think it's an actual, it's, it's, an, it's an excellent training base for set decorating. Yeah, I can imagine. When you start a, um, say you're starting a period that you've never you've never done before, what's your first point of call to get yourself up to speed? My first point of call to get up to speed would be, um, well, it's tricky. If it's something for which you have a visual reference um, that you can access, you know, so if you're doing something Victorian, you can get pictures of old London, you can, you can pull up, I mean, you, you end up with the same 300 sets of research pictures for Victorian picture that you've used on every film and that everybody else has used on every film because those are the only ones that are available. And it's kind of the same thing when it comes to doing something, at the moment the film that I'm doing is a 10th century Viking film. Um, obviously there's not a huge amount of visual reference for 10th century Viking um, and what there is has been... Um, plundered by uh, every art department who's done any ten anything 10th century Viking in the interim. So I was trying to start with what's available, which is real and uh, not someone else's version of it, if you understand what I mean. And then if I think someone's done, if it's something Victorian and I think someone's done a really good, you know, I remember seeing a film and like, oh, they did really good kind of Victorian street market. And then you sort of go back and you think, well, how did you deal with that? If you're dealing with street covers up and how do you deal with those things? So you go back and reference other people's work and, and you know, glean from that what you can. And then, it, like I say, if it's something which 10th century Viking in this instance, um, the director is very keen that it be as real as possible. So you have to m make a very firm line 
in the sand about not dipping over into fantasy and trying to keep things as real as possible, but at the same time working on a very limited set of uh, visual references for what would be accurate and correct. In, in this instance, we have a whole raft of Viking experts that we can call upon um, and run things by to make sure our shovels and spades are <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on that on that topic of detail, like as the set decorator, how heavily involved do you get in, um, you know, making sure that it's the right fabric for the right rugs or the right, you know, all of these kind of elements? Or do you have assistants who help more on those parts? Um, I generally hold a very fast line on that and, and um, everything has to come back through me. And, and certainly when it comes to a less unless I'm exceptionally slammed or busy on another set, um, there won't be a single fabric or texture that will have made it onto set that I have not chosen personally. Um, just because, uh, uh, not that I don't trust anybody to do it, but just because that's one of the things I actually really enjoy, um, is especially with kind of palette and base layers, and make sure you have the right textures and you have the right fabrics and all those things. I mean, obviously, I've got really fantastic assistants who will go out and source and, and bring me things and find me things and, and uh, turn over all the stones to find me what it is that I want. So when you... Yeah, sorry. Well, I was going to say, um, so, you know, you've now got all of your fabrics and all of your props selected. Um, you've got a 10th century Viking hut. How do you know what the dressing plan should be for for this space. I know you have your references, but do you find that you draw things by hand and kind of work it out, or do you like to walk into a space and kind of uh, feel it more? It's it's well when you're building. Normally, I like to walk. I like to walk into the space and feel it. So I'll I'll have, I'll have done I'll have done all the props and all the fabrics, and I'll have done it from the drawings. And I'll have uh, an idea of what the action needs to be and how what we need to how we dress a set to accommodate the action and the camera angles. And depending on the DP, obviously, um, and director, a lot of them work differently. A lot of them like to turn up on the on the day and then work out you know what their what their angles are going to be. And others like to have that absolutely storyboarded to the nth degree in every single frame. So you know beforehand that, you know, that action has to take place over there, that that corner of the set has to facilitate that, that corner of the set has to facilitate that. So so that can that can lead it quite a lot. Um, generally, I will do a dressing pan on paper um, and um, possibly do it in a model if it's something which is quite tricky and we have a lot of uh, complicated action that takes place in it and get all the furniture modeled up and everything so so everybody can have had a play on that beforehand to make sure that's right and then then when you get in if you have um i find if i have an idea in my head of how it's going to look and then it's just and i have all those elements standing by and all those elements there and then it's just a matter of um when i dress a set I don't like to be given like a two day window to dress it. You know, you need to be given like a, a week window to dress it because you go in and you do a layer and then you go away and uh, hopefully get some sleep. And then you come back and you do another layer and you do another layer. And in the interim, there's always things that are still being made, still things that are still being finished, you know, paint finishes that aren't quite right. So, yeah, I think it's uh, a, a layering, a layering process to get it absolutely right. And to just get to, to get to the picture that you have in your head, which sometimes changes when you get into a set. Um, and you get more of a feel for it, but yeah, I, I kind of go in, go in with a, a picture in my head of how it's going to be. So when you, I mean, I know you're not necessarily on set as the set decorator, but do you ever find that you're 
meet an actor or start to see a bit of a performance and that changes the way that you then dress the following sets afterwards? Or do you kind of keep solid with your line um, of how you believe the character would be? I think, well, a lot of the time, if there's something which is very character-driven with a set, um, I will have had a meeting or a conversation with the actor beforehand, with the director and the actor, to say, this is, so this is, say, this is your apartment, this is, this is the kind of, these are the things that I'm saying about you, um, subliminally, basically, these are the things I'm surrounding you with, which I believe are inherent to your character, as I read your character to be in the film, you know, do you concur, basically, and... Uh, a lot of the time actors won't have an opinion on it. Uh, a lot of the times they won't have an opinion on it when you have a meeting, but will turn up on set on the morning of the shoot and then they will have an opinion. Um, but uh, I think for the most part, by the time you've, you've, you've turned over on, on a character set, uh, you should have established who that character is really. In terms of, um, I guess, I guess in terms of the, the job in general, like what would you say is your favourite part? Like, what really gets you excited? I think my favourite part is dressing the set. Is when you get to that point, you know, especially on a feature when you've when you've had the drawings for that set on your board uh, for, you know, upwards of sort of four or five months. And you've spent so much time working out all the detail and so much time, uh, you know, drawing up the makes and overseeing the makes and, and going through all the R&D on... on like key props or all those things. And I think when you get to that point, then when you can get it all to come together, um, that's sort of the best bit. When you, when you get to the end of the last dress day and, um, and it's been lit and before the crew come in and absolutely destroy it um, and you've created this, this perfect world, your vision, you've, got it, you've, you've, you've done all the work you've cried all the tears, you've sweated all the blood, you know, you've, you've trudged back and forth to unit base and done sort of 40,000 steps in a day and and it's, and it's done. That's the best bit. Putting your set to bed is the best bit. Yeah, it's definitely my favourite part <laughs> yeah, too. it's definitely it's my just, favourite um, part too. And, and also then done. when you see the actors in it, just like interacting with the, the crockery that you've selected or whatever, it's just brilliant. Yeah, and seeing the, the, the um, sparks sat on the sofa with their feet. <laughs> I know. I, I remember like being on a feature and redressing the same couch about four times because people just kept sitting on it. it was... <laughs> yeah. And leaving, leaving their craft service bowls of underneath course, it. Yeah. Um, so I, I preemptively told you I might ask you about this, but um, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan and seeing that you worked on Dunkirk and also knowing that uh, very limited crew members were allowed to see the script... As the set decorator, how did you go about, I guess, creating the world, having never really, I guess, without re- reading the script simply? Um, that's that's a tricky one. I mean, I got to read the sections of the script. I was sent the 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 eighth of a page bits that uh, pertain to sets. Anything, um, so you get kind of an outline, okay. and then okay. you're and then you're sent. Um, under enormous amounts of duress. I mean, you have to push them quite a lot to get to get um, the relevant information. Yeah. I think it, uh, it wasn't so bad because of the period that we were working in. And um, once I had a dear, an idea of what the sets were meant to be, and you, you can kind of work it out from that, we didn't have... Um, it wasn't so difficult in that regard. I mean, James Hambidge, who I work with as a production designer, he was... Um, 
supervising art director on a couple of the Batman films with Chris Nolan. And I think for him, it was a lot trickier. He tells a story about going to LA and going to Chris's house and um, being given the script to read. He's only got two hours to sort of read the script and you're not allowed to make notes. So he's like frantically reading the script and trying to remember as much detail as he possibly can. And obviously that's a, a huge amount of information in a Batman script and constantly tr- constantly trying to like feed all this stuff into his brain and then sort of getting a knock on the door saying, well, your time's up. He said, but I haven't had two hours. And they were like, well, that'd be one of the actors that turned up. It's like, well, you've got to go now because, you know, Christian Bale's here. He needs to read it or whatever it was. And then when he came when he came back to London and he had this entire art department all assembled, you know, and the production designer Nathan was still in LA. And James had this art department all assembled. They're all sat there, you know, with their pens, pencil sharpened, going, what what would you what what was it? What was it? Well there was a there was a there was a, there was a this and there was then this set and then just trying to literally pull it all out of the back of his brain. So I think that's a lot more challenging on that scale with uh, a Nolan film. I was kind of lucky. And also yeah. the American set decorator Gary was brilliant. He obviously had read the set. And read the script. Um, so I got and had a copy of the script. So I did uh, manage to get quite a lot of information out of um, out of Gary. But Christopher Nolan has a very different way of working as a, as a director. It's kind of unlike anything I've ever experienced. Before. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's fascinating. I as a as a dyslexic person, the idea of having to speed read a script in two hours and then remember everything seems like, I mean, it's the hardest test I could imagine doing. But quite fun in a sense um well the other thing that i know um the nolan film that's coming out shortly yeah, Tenant. yeah and uh anna pinnock did some of the work on it that was based out of england i remember her saying to me she says well they rang me on the phone and they said they'll read the script down she said they'll read me the script down the phone <laughs> she, said, don't, she said don't be ridiculous wow. <laughs> It's like I was sitting and be read the script like a bedtime story. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's bizarre. The um, I mean, the behind the scenes on something like that must just be, I, I don't know, just as fascinating as the actual um, film itself in some respects. Yes. In terms of a show and tell, you found all of these amazing kind of like props and kind of pieces of furniture and everything. Um, do you then? I know the designer's obviously there, but do you then show the designer and then the director together, or how does it work in terms of presenting your ideas? It depends on the designer. It depends on the designer. Normally, I've gone through the designer first, and there won't be too much that will show up at a show and tell, which will come as a surprise to them. Some designers are um, much more interested in that detail than others. Um, some aren't interested in it at all. Um, so yeah it just depends on the relationship you have with the designer some of them just kind of leave leave you to it and let you run with it and others you know want to be on your shoulder all the time with with every single decision I know it <laughs> I think I know every uh, yeah exactly the same is yeah um so you know you you get a script um do you yeah. then get given the budget and then you then break it down within the confines of that budget or do you kind of make up a budget and then say this is what I think it would be and then they tell you something and you work down how does it work for your it depends it It depends on the film actually depends on the scale of the budget on a on a smaller film on something which is you know sort of around 10 million they because obviously money is a lot tighter some but well on every film somebody somewhere will have will have allocated money accordingly to get to make the budget work to, to fit it all together um, but on a smaller film, there's obviously a lot less leeway. So you might get given, 
you might get given uh, a sort of a heads up that they want you to come in somewhere around, you know, £100,000 for your set decorating budget, like on a smaller film. And then when you actually sit down and look at it and you're like, well, actually, I'm coming in at, um, you know, £200,000. And then you have to go back and re- go through everything and everything and everything all over again and try and disseminate it and break it down. It's even the same on a bigger film. On a bigger film, when you've got the script and a, and a schedule, um, then I would break it down with my buyer well, what I like to do normally, because I, I will do a version of the budget, I will get the buyer to do a version of the budget, and I will get the senior assistant set decorator to do a version of the budget. And this is my kind of fail-safe, because if we all arrive in and around the same number, then I know that there's a reason for that, which is always my argument with the producers. And it's the same if you forget that often, like James Hambridge, I'll say, well, you have a go at it. I'm coming in at 2.5 million. I can't see if it's going to be any less. And uh, James or maybe the supervising art director will go, well, let's, let's all have a look at it. And if we all come in around that sort of money, then then that's really where it's got to be. Obviously, you go in and you put a figure in and everybody balks at it. And then you have to go back and, you know, justify why you need £70,000 for a makes budget and why you need this and why you need that. But I think if you've been doing it long, long enough, enough, you know, you know what, what things cost, cost and um, you, know you know how much, much money you're going to need to spend to, 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 to deliver, deliver what you need to deliver. deliver. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think the whole fail-safe idea is brilliant. The uh, frustrating thing is, is that that budget uh, conversation and toing and froing can take up the first two months of pre-production. <laughs> How do you, um, so say a producer's like, you know, it's coming in at 200,000, you're, you know, you've checked with yourself and your, your colleagues, it's it's 100% going to be 200,000, but they've only got 100,000. Um how does it work then? Do you then tell the designer that they're going to have to recalculate or do you then start to hack at your own bits or what's... Well, you always have to go back and hack at it. You always have to go back and hack at it. But normally you can come and sort of meet in the middle. As long as... If you're if you're presented with a script and a schedule and uh, drawings or the expectation of the director or the expectation of the studio or the expectation of the production designer, then the, the, the bottom line is, is that the, the film that you want to shoot as, as I'm reading it and as you're telling it to me, this is what it's going to cost. And if, if, you, if you want it to cost something else, then, then I'm doing something else. It's going, to be, it's going to be different to what you're asking for because that's, that's not achievable within that money. And obviously you can, you can hack at it and you can take shortcuts and move money around. Um, but I think you've always got to stand fairly firm because otherwise you're shooting yourself in the foot massively and you'll get sort of you know, halfway through production and run out of money and you won't be able to react to things. You won't be able to react to changes. You won't be able to react to, oh, look, we're going to add this set. We haven't got any more money. Can you absorb it? You know, you need to you need to give yourself enough of a, a, a buffer to not constantly be, you know, called into the head of accounts over, you know, an, a, an additional spend. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess everyone works at this differently, but would you have any kind of tips and tricks for speedily getting through a prop house? I think, no, there are no speedy tricks for getting through a prop house. And even even if you know all the stock inside out or you think you know all the stock inside out of every prop house which for the amount of time that I've spent all those prop houses I, I pretty much do you still find things which pertain to your job that you didn't know were there you know there's there's no there's no quick way around it uh, you know 
you know, if, it's like if you're doing something Victorian, you think, okay, well, I know there's there's that there and there's those sofas there and that's nice and I could take that and recover that and I could do that. It's only then when you sort of go back and look at it more and you think about it more with character and you see things in a different light or see things you haven't seen before or, you know, you might find something that's been buried at the back. You're like, oh, I've never seen that. Is that new? It's like, no, I've had that for 20 years. It's like, how have I never seen that? You know, and you've and the hours and hours and hours that you've trudged around all of them. But there's, there's, there's still always surprises to be had. You know, and we're so lucky to have the pop houses that we have in London. I mean, you know, it's 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 a resource that no one else in the world has. We're so fortunate with the pop houses that we have, and 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 people who work in the pop houses who are so knowledgeable and so helpful. And you know, and like I said, all the years I've been going, I've got fantastic relationships with so many people who you know you can ring them on their mobile at eleven o'clock at night and say shit. You know, this is situation. So I've just had a phone call from the producer. Blah blah. blah I'm going to need this first thing in the morning. They'll be like. I'll meet you there at six, get a truck standing by, we'll sort it out. You know, that's, you know, incredibly fortunate to yeah, have that's that. Yeah, fantastic. I also find, um, I just love um, re- revisiting the same area, specifically when it comes to ornaments and just finding something completely mental that you, you honestly have never seen before, but it must have been there for years. Yeah. It's so fun. Exactly. Only when you're looking for it. It's like my mother used to always say, the hungry eye sees mm. far. <laughs> exactly and then um my other favorite thing is um the stockyard roof it's just fantastic and full of all kinds of crazy stuff yeah i try we wouldn't want to spend too much time on the stockyard roof. i think that's somewhere i'd an assistant <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. i know the one I, I really i actually really love going to men at work um oh, yeah. and just getting chatting with andy and gerard and just ending up up ladders into shipping containers with torches <laughs> you know, just and Andy's saying it's around here somewhere it's definitely down. which one is it in no we definitely got hang on no, you know and it's just honestly the, the the treasure that they have just buried deep in containers there is just unbelievable and they're just they're two of the nicest men in the industry as well it's it's always an absolute yeah, pleasure got an incredible collection um unbelievable so on the topic of working with assistants like how do you personally prefer it? Do you like them to um, give you their opinions if they see something they like, or would you rather them kind of be a bit more kind of just follow you around, take notes, and how how does it work with you? No, no, I like them to have their own opinion. It's a very much um, it's very much a team effort. It's not um, it's not all about me, <laughs> and it has to be because you know when you're you're constantly having to go to the well and be creative and come up with new things all the time. You need other people's input. You need you need people to come at things from a different perspective and and um and think of things that maybe you haven't thought of. And what I like to do normally is I have a, a, a one senior assistant set decorator who is kind of my filter and my buffer, and then and is much more experienced and generally uh, hopefully someone I work with a lot. So we have a shorthand and and they know how I like to work. And then beneath that, I'll have other assistant set decorators who are assigned to sets, and they will be given a brief and go and bring me what they perceive to to fall within that brief or what they thought oh look I found this this might be good or I thought maybe we could do this then um yeah and I'm always very open to all of that I think it's a it should be a combined creative process I mean you're if you're filling a set decorating department with not only people that you can get uh, along with which is very important and people who can all support each other and be there for each other it's also important that everybody brings something to the table and everybody feels that they're bringing something to the table. And when, when you get to watch a finished film up on the screen, that even if it's the, you know, the set deck assistant who's been doing some petty cash buying, that she can see props on set that she was personally responsible for, that, you know, I think it's important that everybody 
everybody gets a little bit of something to take away from it. everybody feels that they've made a creative choice somewhere along the way which has been which has been valid and been you know been part of the overall vision yeah i mean i i, I think that's the best way to I, I wish i worked with you when i was petty cash buying <laughs> um yeah so i guess from the the last year or whichever period of time you'd like um is there a project you'd like to mention as something you really enjoyed working on something you're really proud of well i was thinking about that actually because i did see that was the question you were going to ask i think um last summer we did or we finished last summer last year we did a um a live action version of tom and jerry for warner brothers so tom and jerry are animated and everything else is live action and it was incredibly challenging because we had an animation unit and we had a visual effects unit and you know effectively we're making sort of three films at the same time and trying to service all that and keep everybody happy um and there was a couple of sets on that which were um really challenging we had um a, a wedding set a, a big indian wedding set without giving too much away because it's um <laughs> not not out for a while yet but it was meant to be this incredibly over the top new york wedding um the bride was indian so it had the, the, all these indian overtones and the groom was meant to have gone completely all out you know we had sort of animated animals in it like trashing the whole thing but it was an enormous set um and incredibly challenging to complete because we basically built the whole set out of fabric with some architectural elements. So it was like an enormous, uh, to have the appearance of being a ballroom in a a massive hotel, which has been sort of draped with all these incredibly ornate fabrics. And uh, I went to India and we sourced um, lots of Indian wedding props uh, that we had made over there and shipped over and all our fabrics and trimmings and, you know, container, container loads of stuff that we had shipped over from India. It's one of those sets that we spent such a long time doing and sort of chipping away at it because obviously we needed to get the stuff shipped from India. So we did that like sort of three months before we did the set. And uh, as a, as a, and there was lots of other big sets in the meantime, but that was one that was kind of always brewing and always brewing and always brewing. And we were chucking labour at it all along just because there were so many elements that we had to get right in it. And when that all came together, and we had these fantastic florists as well, when that all came together as a set, and it was to the wire, it was literally to the wire. Um, that was uh, that was a very satisfying feeling, I think, because when when it was all done and you walked into the room, there was there was no way you couldn't but go, fucking hell, look at this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds incredible. I'd love. I, I can't wait for it to come out and see it. Um, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's a shame there's been less live action animated stuff lately, other than something like an Alvin and the Chipmunks type thing. Um, yeah, but I think they've, um, I think they've bought the sort of whole Hanna Barbera back catalogue. So I think if the Tom wow. and Jerry thing works as a concept, um, then they might well do a lot more of them. You know, like Hong Kong Fu would be a good one to do, for example. Yeah, that'd be really fun. <laughs> I don't know if you were necessarily on set when it was happening, but when cartoon things are kicking off and destroying stuff, um, is that just basically just someone in a green suit smashing up your beautiful set? Or? Uh, it's a little bit of that. We have, um, there was a lot of um, men in green suits uh, and a lot of uh, maquette sort of stand-ins for the animals. And then um, it made, it made a, a lot of the shooting sort of quite complicated. And obviously we had a fantastic visual effects team. Yeah. 
so in as much as we would shoot all the live action stuff and then we'd have to shoot a whole you know separate set for them so but we'd have to if the set had been destroyed in the live action version we would then have to redress the set so they could lidar the set and then we would have to redress the set so it was trash and they could lidar that or and then do it in sort of stages so once you shut all the live action you almost need another crew going back in and and servicing the visual wow. effects crew i mean it's yeah it's just crazy but it sounds super fun um, I mean, it's one of those things that I can imagine at the time being really stressful, but retrospectively just sounds like a, a brilliant experience. Yeah, it was um, It was stressful and uh, very involved. But, you know, it was a really good experience. I learned, I learned a lot from it. I definitely learned a lot from it um, on, on many levels, not just the, that, way of, that way of shooting and having to accommodate so many different departments. You know, was, there was above and beyond just servicing a director and a producer but having to to service all everybody else's requirements was it was at times challenging or making sure that everybody was sharing the information you know because we'd have an animation department who would be doing sort of previs of a sequence and in the previs of the sequence which they perceived to be a comedy sequence they would be um putting you know a, a sideboard in the middle of the room so they could have somebody knock over a vase of flowers it's like well there is no sideboard in the middle of that room so they so they've got to be writing this action based on how a set was dressed when the set wasn't even built and it wasn't how it was going to be dressed so you'd have to just make sure that everybody was sharing all the information so you go back and say you know how you've got the cat knocking over the vase of flowers and, and you wouldn't have a vase of flowers there can we make that something else so it was just uh yeah having to stay on top of all of that was, was quite yeah, tricky I mean, it sounds really tricky um in terms of like um you know, traveling to India or, or somewhere like that to look for materials. How frequently do you do that on your job? Um, as often as the budget will allow, really. I think um, if the budget allows, I mean, I sort of know from experience, I did um, a friend of mine, a very old friend of mine, a set decorator, American set decorator I worked with on a film in Arizona years ago. And she was doing um, Marco Polo season two in uh, Malaysia. And I wasn't working at the time and she rang me up and she said, oh, will you do me a favour? Um, I really need someone to go to Bali and do some buying for me. I was like, okay, well, I speak Indonesian, number one, so that's easy. Uh, yeah, I'll go to Bali and do some buying. <laughs> and um, and having often thought about it before is that how much, if you have if you have the time to go and source things overseas, it's, it's so much more cost effective. And not just cost effective, but you can find such treasure you know and it and it really kind of opens your mind up to um to different options that are available you know you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks trying to sort fabrics source fabrics in england which you're paying you know sort of 60 quid a meter for um but then you can go to the fabric market in delhi and find reams and reams and reams of fabric which are you know 10 pounds a meter which you can have dyed for an additional one pound a meter and fire retarded for another you know 50p a meter and have all of that sort of shipped and sent so it just makes sense and it's actually quite a nice way to do it um because it gives you a massive stock of sort of raw material as it were you know so on this the viking job that we've got we, we went to India and I bought an enormous amount of fabrics and trims and leathers and, and all these things. And so now my drape shop is absolutely stocked to the, stock to the you know, the specific things that I've bought, but there's also specific things that I know that I will use, which are there sort of as yeah. raw materials. You can go in and say, oh, we're going to use this for this and make, so you basically create your own warehouse full of things. You create your own prop house um, and fill it with all the things which you know will work for the period. And then you can just work out 
where they're going to go with it if you haven't got a specific place for them or what's going to go for which set so it's quite to have to have that is is a luxury and if the budget will allow it um i think it's a really good way to do it because then you can react to things much quicker as well if you've got you know containerfuls of stuff that you've bought there's no um, one you're not going to have a drama trying to find something at the last minute because you've probably got it yeah, properly. And, um, and, and in four different colours or something like that. Exactly, exactly. Um, do, you, um, do you get involved much with the um, all this beautiful fabric afterwards? Do you know what, like, does it, what happens to it? Or do they sell it off or what's the... It depends on the film. If it's a smaller budget film, they want to sell it off because they want to get some money back. You know, they want to, you know, they, they want to sell the props, they want to sell this, that and the other. Um, I haven't had that before past uh, three films that I've worked on because everything has been um, uh, stored so everything's been just listed up and stored in containers for you know reshoots sequels or whatever so all your your uh, stock of fabric that you haven't used which is generally probably not that much by the time you get to the end of a film you start off with a film with racks and racks of it by the time you get to the end there's generally not that much left. <laughs> have you um, have you ever worked on a film that uh, you know that has this kind of stock that you can then reuse? Um, I've just been always been curious. Like I, I guess it's more of like a Disney Marvel thing where they've got all of these like containers of previous things. But I mean, I, I just wonder if it ever gets used again. It does. I think it does. There's um, certainly in the past. Um, working on something for Warner Brothers there's been stuff which we know Warner Brothers owns that have been used on the back lot you know for example on the back lot when they did Fantastic Beasts as New York um, they had cast and made all the original New York streetlights wow. so uh, we knew that those existed so when we were doing Tom and Jerry and we had to do a New York street on the back lot we knew that those lights existed so we had to go to Warner Brothers and say, look, we know you've got these lights, you've got them in storage somewhere with your Fantastic Beasts and can we rent them from you, you know, as we're also Warner Brothers production. So that there, there is, um, we did quite a lot of that in that in that instance, which which they don't worry, because it's not so much a character thing or it's not something that pertains so much to their franchise. It's more, um, you know, street lamps or, or street dressing. Then, uh, yeah, that worked quite well. But I think it's also, the, you know, when you're given a, when you're given someone's inventory of props and it's uh, amounts to sort of 48 containers, each one containing 300 boxes and you've got a list going through it, there's going to come a point you have to weigh up how much labour and time it's going to take you to go and find, you know, that chair yeah. <laughs> as opposed to... God, it'd be crazy. Yeah, let's let's just make another and, one, shall we? Yeah. yeah, and it would always be in the last box in the last container. Or oh, completely. Or it wouldn't actually be in the container it's meant to be in or it wouldn't be in the box that it's meant to be in. That's the other... Um, that's the other classic yeah, exactly. injury fail. got yeah. mislabeled and actually had been um, destroyed on set or whatever. Yeah, well, there it is, or it's buried behind a 47 boxes of mm, costume. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I guess my last question is, um, during the time of recording, it's um, still quarantine. And what are you doing to kind of stay artistically motivated and, um, yeah, not go crazy? Um, well, because, like I say, we've come down to our house in Wales and it's been quite a good opportunity to catch up on lots of jobs that just don't get done. So I have, um, I've refurbed two sets of uh, French windows, which was a job that I really wish I'd never started. Yeah. That's, um, so that's a new skill that I've learned. And I've just been doing, I've been doing quite a lot of drawing, um, which is nice. Not, that's not something I normally have time to do. Um, a lot of drawing, house renovations. I've been cold water swimming a lot. That's been keeping me sane, and um, and walking the dog. 
a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've been told the um, the uh, a lot of the dog shelters are just struggling because everyone's trying to to get dogs or borrow dogs, and yeah, it seems like the perfect cure for staying in home. Yeah, no, the dogs the dogs being a godsend. She's exhausted every day. Every day she's like, I can't believe you're taking me on another ten kilometre walk, but it's it's um it's good. And I've still obviously got there's still bits and pieces that are ticking over and um, things that were still getting. I'm going to still have a lot of carvings being done in India. So there's work, other things that I still have to stay on top of for the job that I'm meant to go back to in July um, to pay attention to those things and just um, keep keep an eye on all of that and keep a foot in that door and just try and keep it present in my mind because obviously it feels like quite a long time ago that we finished or we, I mean, we went on hiatus a week before we were due to start shooting. So, um yeah, trying to imagine how it'd be to get back to to jump back on that again. So, were the um, were the sets kept up, or are they? Are you going to have to rebuild them all? No, well, because the th- the three key sets are all exterior builds, um, okay. um, basically building three different sort of villages in different spots in Northern Ireland, and one of which was already standing, which was quite a complicated one in a, in a really inaccessible location. <laughs> um, that one is still standing. And that one, I think, given the nature of it, without giving too much away, is a set that will only have benefited from being left to, to grow and to settle, um, as will the other one. Actually, the two that we, the two which were under construction, I think I'm really interested to go back and see what, what um, how Mother Nature has behaved with these sets and, and, um, and what sort of weathering or aging or how they've survived. I'm really interested to see how that's worked out. And I'm hoping that it's going to have had a, you know, fantastically positive effect on the sets in terms of they're just going to feel much more organic and much more bedded in. You know, a lot of the time when you build a certain location like that, half the half the problem that you will have is making it feel like it belongs, making it feel like it's been there for a long time, you know, whether even that's just kind of greens creeping up the side of the building or, or the gardens printed, you know, parked out the front or just the the weathering on the on on the thatch on the roof and so it doesn't feel like it's just been sprayed on so I'm, I'm really hoping that it would have been a bit of um a godsend actually and we'll go back and these sets are just going to feel incredibly sort of organic and lived in either that or they yeah. will fall apart and yeah or um or the same <laughs> living in them yeah possibly Either human or animal <laughs> yeah probably animal <laughs> sheep um amazing well thanks so much for your time and um yeah good luck with um the viking job thank you very much max nice to talk to you the show's intro was composed by Sam McGrail, mixed by Max Bloom, and the artwork was created by Alec Jagodzinski.